When most people think about the auto industry, they usually conjure up images of car companies or people building cars on the assembly line. But it's automotive suppliers who make all the parts and components that go into those vehicles. And typically, it's the suppliers who come up with most of the new ideas and technology. One of the most successful suppliers in the world is Borg Warner, which has followed a very astute strategy of getting involved in the kind of technology that improves fuel economy and reduces emissions. Tim Manganello is the CEO and chairman of Borg Warner, and he is my guest on today's show. And in just a moment, we'll be getting his firsthand account of where he sees the automotive business going. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Thank you for joining us here in the studio with my guest today, Tim Manganello, the CEO and Chairman of Borg Warner. Great having you on the set of AutoLine Detroit here, Tim. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Also joining us this morning are Mark Clothier from Bloomberg and Joanne Muller from Forbes. And great having the both of you here today, too. Great to be here. Thanks. Tim, we've got a lot to talk about, but let's start out about this disruption that we've seen in the auto industry from Japan with the earthquake and the tsunami. Some analysts are now saying, Sean McAlinden from the Center for Automotive Research, maybe automakers have got to look at their supply chain. Maybe they've consolidated too much, i.e. too few suppliers. Maybe they're sharing too many components across too many platforms all around the world. So if you get a disruption, things go down. Do you think the supply chain is going to change as a result of that? Well, first of all, uh, the supply chain is one of the areas of that everybody has to investigate. You know, very quickly into the, uh, the 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 earthquake issue, I, I was in Paris at the time, on a, you know, just getting ready to fly back to Detroit on a Friday morning, and by Sunday we had organized a task force to look into our supply chain. So I've got a number of people working, drilling down. If we're a tier one supplier, then they're drilling down into our tier twos, our threes, and our fours, and we turned out, if I use us as an example, we turned out to be about about 200, a little over 200 and some companies in, in that chain. And uh, at first we had, we classified our suppliers in, the, in Japan as red, yellow, green relative to how they were impacted in, by the earthquake. And we ended up with uh, mostly, re mostly green, about initially 33 yellow and about 15 reds. We pretty much pushed that all down. Now, by working the system, we're down to not even maybe one red. So uh, we're doing a lot of a lot of workarounds. We're uh, we're getting some places we're dual source, so we're shifting the source. Some places where we had they had plants in Japan, but the same company had a plant in Texas. We're seeing we're getting things moved to Texas. Uh, so there's a lot of people spent a lot of time, but I think. We don't know how deep the hole is on the supply chain issue, and as they start building cars, I think they're gonna they're gonna be lower in the swamp, and every time they lower the swamp, they're gonna hit another stump, and that stump's gonna be a supplier that's gonna shut them down. It may be a day, or maybe a week, or maybe a couple hours, but it's gonna be a big challenge. I'm wondering, you know, I've heard that uh, as the car makers and their suppliers deal with these challenges, that, you know, things will get slow for the first half, but it's going to come roaring back in the second half, uh, 15, maybe even 16 million unit SAR rate. And the question I, I have is, is the industry capable of producing cars at that rate now after we've cut back so far? 
Well, that's more than just a, a Japan earthquake question. So uh, I'll just address it as a general question for the whole industry globally. Um, we're all putting in capacity. I know uh, a number of us are looking at the forecast from the suppliers or from the OEMs. We're looking at the forecast and the capacity of our suppliers, and we're basically putting in capacity to handle what I think is an increasing demand, just like you said. So we're working with our own facilities to increase capacity. We're working out with our supply base to let them know what, what we're going to take our capacity up to. And in some cases, we're increasing our capacity sooner than the OEMs are saying they're going to need it and higher to higher levels than we think that OEMs are going to ask for it. Why? You must be and very bullish on where car sales I, are going I, I to I think go. what's going to happen is that uh, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll increase capacity at the proper pace, but we want to be ahead of the game. I don't want to have anybody waiting for parts from Borg Warner. Uh, now, are we going to do anything crazy? No, we're not. We're going to still manage our inventory. We're going to still manage our cap CapEx spending. But the worst thing that can happen if, if I take this path is I may have some extra capacity in six months ahead of time before the, before the, the orders actually show up. Better to have the capacity in six months ahead of time and wait for the orders to show up than basically be six months late and be chasing trucks down the road uh, and trying to throw parts on trucks. Uh, which with expedited freight and overtime and all these extra costs. And trust me, I've done it both ways, and it's in the long run, it's cheaper to have a little bit extra capacity. When you, you talked about the, some of the supply chain issues related to Japan, <clears throat> do you see, you mentioned some of, the, some of the suppliers that you have in the, in the chain there are moving some of the work to factories they may have in the U.S. Are there other examples where um, maybe that work's going to be moving permanently for those because these issues kind of come up and there's no way of knowing? Um, that's an interesting question that I thought about, and, and I, I think that this is my personal opinion, and I don't have any inside knowledge from any of these OEMs, but I think that some of the Japanese OEMs that have put a lot of their capacity inside Japan and kept it there, but yet they've made product in, in Japan or made componentry, uh, whether it's transmissions or engines or vehicles inside Japan, and then exported them, and Toyota's been a little bit more... F Japanese-centric than most. I think this will may cause them to th rethink their strategy, and I think they may probably uh, redistribute their supply base to be a little bit more global. A little, you know, there may be more business for traditional uh, American or European suppliers like like we are. Um, although we do a fair amount of business with Japan, but it's with Toyota, but it's a through a Kuritsu. Uh, joint venture that we have uh, with NSK Warner. Um, and I think that you may see them locating more facilities, dispersing their their factories globally, one, to help them with uh, protection against earthquakes and other cat catastrophes, but it, two, it helps them with currency yeah. fluctuation, and it's a, it's a natural hedge on currency. And, you know, if they're not getting hit by the, the issue of the day right now, which is the earthquake and the nuclear issues, uh, they get hit the Japanese get hit by currency fluctuation, right. just like the rest of us do. But, you know, I think this may cause them, in the long term, to redistribute their supply base on their manufacturing sites. Borg Warner is a company that's very strong in traditional internal combustion engines and tr traditional powertrains. The whole world's talking about electric cars and other alternatives and the, and the like. How does Borg Warner protect itself if indeed the market does go to these alternatives? Well, do, we're developing technology for electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles. Uh, we uh, we're developing uh, using our.
glow plug technology from diesel engines. We're actually developing uh, heater systems for cabin heaters for electric vehicles and, hydro and hybrids because electric vehicles, they don't have a radiator, they don't have a, they don't have a antifreeze, they don't have that source of, of heat to, to use for heating systems. So we're using our, our, our core competency both on the engine business and, uh, or the transmission business with our transmission technology and our engine business with our glow plug technology and our thermal management capability through our cooling systems group to basically come up with how to manage the temperature in, in, in electric vehicles to keep that battery at the precise 10 degree range that that battery wants to run in. If the battery gets too cold, it loses life, and if it gets too hot, it loses life, so permanently. So we, you know, we're working technology to, to keep in that sweet spot. Uh, the other one is we've developed a new transmission for electric vehicles and almost we're supplying we have supplied um, Tesla. We're supplying the Ford uh, electric uh, C-Max. I, I thought one of the beauties of electric cars is they don't really need transmissions. They have a single or two-speed transmission. You have to go from a high-speed electric motor to a low-speed axle or wheel. So somebody's got to do that gear reduction and, and distribute the, you know, change the speed of the gearing and redistribute the torque, and uh, that's where we come in. But you lose money in the process. I mean, this is a much simpler transmission you're talking about for electric cars, or you don't care. Well, let's just say this. Borg Warner doesn't plan on losing money anywhere. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, uh, and we don't plan on doing it on transmissions for electric vehicles either. Uh, so we've developed, a, actually, we've developed a, a, a unique design that, that we're going to sell to all the electric vehicle manufacturers. We're going to commonize the design, so all the guts of this transmission are common, and then we're going to have an adapter that can mount to the front end of the transmission that will basically mount to the rest of the powertrain in the electric vehicle. We can sell basically the same transmission to all electric vehicle manufacturers worldwide. We're talking to probably 20 electric vehicle manufacturers globally for this transmission. We, we put this, we, we've got the transmission going into you know, China, or for, we're talking to the Chinese vehicle manufacturers. Uh, we're dealing with the American vehicle manufacturers and some Europeans, and so we're going to basically com commonize the volume. And we do plan on making some money on this. Hmm. Now, I will say that the original transmission we did with uh, for Tesla on their electric vehicle, which is in production today, you know, that was more of a labor of love. And you know, if I'm lucky, we broke even. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> but you got to stick your toe in the water at some point. We had to break the ice, yeah. and and uh, it worked out well. We we developed a product that the rest of the world wanted and so that cracked the ice for us. I know you've got a lot of growth going on uh, in Asia, particularly China. You see a lot of growth there like everybody does, but I'm curious about the powertrain development in China. Uh, are, are, they, uh, are they into the smaller turbocharged engines the same way that uh, the U.S. And, and Europe are or are they sort of leaping over that and heading right into electric vehicles more? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. They're, they're big into powertrain. Powertrain is the sweet spot of the auto market right now, or one of them, along with safety. And uh, downsized, turbocharged gas and diesel engines are just basically booming all over the world, particularly in China, uh, especially for small cars, small engines, small cars. Same thing with dual-clutch transmissions. 
uh, th that technology, which we kind of developed in Europe, and we started selling originally to Volkswagen and Audi. Now we're selling it not just in Europe, but we're, we're going to be launching uh, with uh, Shanghai and First Auto. And we're, we, we've even developed a new small, unique, and we've talked about this a long time ago uh, in Paris, uh, John, about a special design transmission dual clutch just for small cars. That we're working with a Japanese OEM and a Chinese OEM. So the Chinese are really on top of the latest and greatest technology. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they're doing that. But the, at the same time, they have a focus, the, 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 the central government has a focus on making China the leading country for electric vehicles. They have a, they have a strategy to basically go into production of about one million electric vehicles per year in China. And uh, I think it's by 2020, the, the Chinese government has a strategy to have 10 million electric vehicle charging stations dispersed throughout China, probably in most of the major cities. And uh, so they, they actually have a strategy to, to basically level a playing field for all technologies, and they're gonna basically have a, a quite a strong presence in almost every type of powertrain technology. Electric vehicles, three-cylinder and four-cylinder, or even smaller maybe, downsized diesel and gas engines, dual-clutch transmissions, because that gives you the fuel economy of a manual transmission, but the ease of driving of an automatic. So the Chinese are really focused on leading technology. And the other part of that equation is, the reason they focus on technology, it's, they want it for their own market, and they want to be the leaders, but they want to go global. And the only way to go global and sell your vehicles in a sophisticated, mature, European or American market is they have the latest technology. Otherwise, you're kind of you're taking a backseat to everybody else. So this, of course, is good news for you, for Borg Warner. It's great news for Borg Warner. We're, we're growing uh, this year, you know, assuming everything smooths out by the end of the year regarding Japan and the supply situation. We plan on growing 16 to 20 percent this year on sales, and we've increased our profits. Uh, we gave guidance on our profits. Uh, from, uh, we take, took it up from, we finished 2010 at $3.02 a share, and we gave guidance for 2011 at $3.85 a share to $4.15 a share. And if, if, if everything goes right, I hope we're at the high end. Yeah, who says this is a mature, slow-growth industry? If you're in the right parts, you can grow a lot. And speaking of which, let's go back to that conversation we had in Paris a couple of years ago. It's fascinating to see these very low-cost cars coming out, especially in India, where Tata came out with the Nano, under $3,000 for this car. How do you design leading-edge technology like a dual-clutch transmission that can fit into very low-cost cars? Maybe not 3000 bucks, but certainly seven or 8000 Well, they're going to want that car to have an automatic transmission eventually, those cars. And, and, so, um, and they're going to want to be competitive in terms of the shift feel and the way they drive and... Nobody wants to take a back seat on performance. Uh, and so uh, we're working with them on smaller, downsized transmissions, uh, maybe a little bit more simplicity of the transmission. you got to understand, our heritage, we were the inventor of the automatic transmission, and we used to make manual transmissions. We don't make complete transmissions anymore, but we make, we're like, it, I call it Borg Warner inside. Some people call it like Intel inside. But uh, we... Uh, we make the, the the heart and soul and the guts of a, of an automatic or a dual clutch transmission, and so we're just working on downsizing, taking out weight, increasing the torque capacity of our clutches, uh, 
and uh, and basically trying to come up with ways to have a competitive transmission for small, downsized, cheaper cars. You've recently been talking more about the opportunities in the commercial vehicle market. Right. What are in, in even on the even on the light vehicle side of the business? Um, the U.S. is a bit of an emerging market in terms of turbochargers and those sort of products. Um, how does the, how do the penetration levels in the in light vehicles compare with penetration levels in uh, commercial vehicles? How big is that? For for Borg Warner or yep. for turbocharging? Okay, turbocharging. Well, almost all commercial vehicles are diesels, and every diesel has a turbocharger. In some cases, they may have two now, and we've worked on technology to come up with regulated two stage where we have a small turbocharger that turbocharges a larger turbocharger and eliminates turbo lag. Um, on the pass car side or the light vehicle side, uh, you're seeing more and more penetration of downsized turbocharged gas engines with the GDI. To give you an example, uh, gas engines in 2010, globally, there was probably around 17.2 oh, million gas engines that used turbochargers. Uh, I'm sorry, that's that's total. 17.2 was total engines, including diesels. And that grows up to about 28 million. Uh, uh, and that's the diesel side. Uh, the 17 to 28 with turbocharging, units of turbochargers in uh, uh, 2015, 2010 to 2015. For gas, it goes from 4 million gas engines globally to 10 million gas engines globally uh, with turbocharging. So there's tremendous growth opportunity in the turbocharger business. So. so. And where are the biggest opportunities on the commercial vehicle side? Is it things like EGR and some of the emissions reductions? Well, we just did an acquisition on, of ENSA to buy EGR intercooler. We developed the EGR technology, and one of the missing links within our portfolio products uh, is um, intercooling for the EGR valve, what I call EGR cooling. And um, it allows you to put cooler air into the combustion chamber so you get more efficient combustion. And that's what we should do for, for people who don't know EGR, exhaust, exhaust gas, gas recirculation. recirculation. It's Sorry, an emissions yeah. control technology, right? Right, right. right. And uh, so we did that. To, you know, th That's a growth market because there's going to be, to meet the emissions levels of the future and still get the fuel economy that everybody wants, you've got to lower the combustion temperature. And you, you want to, it helps with, uh, gets better power. Yeah, you get less uh, NOx on the emission side, yep. so it gives you a better, better burn. So, uh, they, and we we have about 15% of our sales, maybe 16% of our sales, in what I call the commercial side of the business, whether it's uh, commercial trucks on highway or off highway uh, products like uh, you know uh, as construction made equipment. Uh, construction equipment by Cat and Deer and. You know, all the other. We're, we're very big in Europe and we're very big in, in North America. And the opportunity for us now is to grow globally on the, on, the, on the construction equipment and the commercial vehicle side of our business. So we have a small market share on turbochargers in China, maybe about 5%, uh, and we have the opportunity to grow quite significantly in China. Shifting gears here, as we say on this show a lot. Bob King from the UAW says he's going to really put on a press to organize the transplants, and that's getting all the headlines. But I know their strategy is also to go after suppliers as well. 
What are your thoughts along that? Uh, you know, do you think the UAW is going to come after Borg Warner and organize the workforce in the U.S.? Um, they, they come after us from time to time. Our, our employees are very happy with the situation they have now. We have one union location uh, in North America, uh, in Ithaca, New York. It's, they've got the Teamsters. Uh, they be they're very competitive. They've stayed competitive. Uh, it's we have a good relationship with them. The only the first and the main thing I ask for from our plants is just stay competitive. You have to not just compete against other plants in Borg Warner, but every one of our plants has to be able to compete globally in the product line where they that they produce. And uh, our employees are quite happy, so I don't know why they would need a union. But uh, they're getting profit sharing. They got they had profit sharing in in uh, 2010, uh, paid this year. They had profit sharing. They they were they earned profit sharing in 2009, paid in 2010. Uh, so, and yeah, we had some wage freezes and so forth. But and we our salary people took a 10 percent wage cut in 2009. But we're a profitable company and we're a growing company. And not everybody in the auto sector can say that. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Another thing I've got to ask you about, too. Borg Warner has been associated with the Indy 500, I don't yeah. know how long. You guys have been giving out the trophy to the winner right. since, what, the 30s or something like that? Or does it go back more 1936. than 1936. Unbelievable. This is, as you well know, the 100th year of the, the Indy year. 500. Big year. Big year. What's your look for uh, Indy racing? As uh, well, I think you know, it's gone through some transition. Yeah. What's your thoughts on it now? Well, first of all, it's a fun sport. I'm in the winter circle every year in this job, uh, and so I've been in there, I think, 12 years now. And uh, um, it's a fun sport. It's coming back. Uh, the, as I see the stadiums or the, the stands around the track, they're full or almost full every year. Uh, there was a couple lean years. You know, they would have to admit to that. But it's, I think it's, it's coming back, and open-wheel racing seems to be coming back. And... Uh, Indy, the IRL League and the Indy 500 itself, I think are doing very well now, and um, and they, you know, they've got some great drivers. Uh, one of the one of the perks of this job is that uh, not only do you get to be in the winner's circle and put the wreath on the dri winning driver, and it's kind of a fun story because the way it goes is they uh, they do the Firestone hat, then they do the Borg winner wreath. And then the, the queen kisses the driver, um, and then, then the driver drinks the milk and sprays milk all over everybody. <laughs> the one year that uh, they looked like at the end of the race that Danica Patrick might win the race, the queen turns to me and says, there's no way I'm going to kiss Danica Patrick. <laughs> I said, no problem. Here's the yeah, race. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But they have, they, we've never had to make those adjustments. That's an engineering change on the fly, but we haven't had to make that adjustment. But someday we'll have to figure that out. You know, you were talking so much about growth, which is great, but isn't it putting a lot of pressure on um, commodity prices? I mean, how are you coping with that? Well, we've always had the challenge of commodity prices. Almost every year, commodities have challenged us in one area or another. For a while there was nickel, now it's steel. Um, we work, we focus a lot on cost reduction. We focus a lot, uh, in our company we call it financial discipline. We focus a lot on cost control and managing our pennies. We don't manage our dollars, we manage our pennies. And um, 
Uh, we, we've done hedging, where we've hedged commodities, where it's hedgeable. We've done pre-buys, uh, where in the years past, we've gone out and bought large quantities of steel and at very low prices and used those for, used up that stock as long as we could. And, um, and we basically do the, we've, one year in, uh, when nickel, a couple of years there where nickel was really out of control. We found ways to reduce the nickel content in our product but still maintain the performance, which helped us a lot. Uh, we've got pass-throughs with most of our supplier or most of our customers. And so we've managed the, the pass-throughs that we have with our customers versus some of the pass-throughs we have with our, some of our suppliers. And so it's, it just takes a lot of work and a lot of focus, and it's a lot of little things that add up to just keeping things in control. And that's just not on commodities. That's pretty much the way we run our business. Are there certain commodities that you're particularly vulnerable to? I'm, I'm well, we not use really a lot sure. of steel. We use okay. a lot of nickel, mm -hmm. a lot of aluminum, mm -hmm. and uh, some copper, and some resin. Uh, but those are those are pretty much the biggies of this of the auto sector. Yeah, at least right. it's not platinum or rare no, earth metals no, or something like that. Not yet, but <laughs> some of our customers have real challenges with rare earth, as you know. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap this up. Tim Manganiello, thanks so much for coming on AutoLine. It's been great having you here. It was a lot of fun. And Mark Clothier, thank you. And Joanne Muller, thank you. And thank all of you for having watched. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. I'm pretty impressed with Borg Warner. Even during the big collapse in the global auto industry two and a half years ago, the company still managed to turn a profit. And as you heard Tim Manganiello say, even though most of the company's current technology centers around the internal combustion engine, they're already laying the groundwork for alternative types of powertrains that are on the way. Now that is a smart strategy. And if you'd like to learn more about the latest news and technology that's happening in the auto industry, check out our website where we have all kinds of additional information. But that brings us to the end of this show. So for all of us here at AutoLine, thanks for watching. We will see you next week.